Welcome to In Search of Wisdom, a podcast by the Perennial Leader Project. On today's episode, my guest is John Sellers, the author of the new book, The Pocket Epicurean. Professor Sellers is a reader in philosophy at Royal Holloway University of London, a visiting research fellow at King's College London. He's also the author of Lessons in Stoicism, The Art of Living, and many others. In the conversation, John and I discuss finding tranquility, the wisdom of nature, what we actually need to live a good life, how the Stoics and Epicureans viewed the role of virtue, how to think about emotions, wisdom in daily life, and much more. I hope you enjoy this deep dive into Stoicism and Epicureanism. So without any further delay, please welcome the wise and gracious John Sellers. Well, John, welcome to In Search of Wisdom. Thanks for taking the time to come on. Thanks very much for having me. Oh, it's a pleasure. I'm looking forward to to chatting with you. You, You've written several books, but one recently is The Pocket Epicurean, and you've also written The Pocket Stoic. So I was hoping we could chat about maybe some similarities and differences between uh, these two schools. But before we get into that, I wanted to just ask a little bit out of curiosity, maybe what led you down the path of, of philosophy at an, at an early age? You, you've done this as a, as a career. Anything come to mind? Yeah, I mean, when I was, when I was a young, you know, fairly young, um, you know, early teens, um, I guess I was interested in, in sort of sciencey type questions, um, mm. things like, um, although the book hadn't been written then, um, something like Stephen Hawking's A Brief History of Time, you know, the origins of the universe, where does it all come from? Those sorts of big, big questions I think I found really fascinating. Um, and I remember reading a few books about, some very popular books about physics at the time that would address these questions. And they often come quite, become quite philosophical quite quickly, right? You know, is there an origin to the universe? What's the nature of space and time? So I had a kind of a first interest in those sorts of big questions. And then a little later in my sort of late teens, as I I got older and sort of faced the real world of, you know, um, the, the prospect of leaving school and the world of work and money and all of those sorts of things, I remember I was studying politics and um, I had a very good teacher of politics, and we learned stuff about the the um, the political system in the UK and America and elsewhere, constitutions, all of that kind of stuff. But on a Friday afternoon, we'd have some time out, and he would ask us questions like, "What is freedom? What mm. is equality? What is justice?" These kind of big questions about values. And I think that was probably my my first real introduction to philosophy. So I had these interests in the kind of the physics and the the theoretical questions, where did it all come from? But then also these other questions to do with values and about how people live. And so with those two things going on together, 
I then found this subject philosophy that enabled me to spend time thinking about both of them. I'm curious, for for some people that kind of get bit with some of these big questions, it can be a, a fun, exciting curiosity, or sometimes it can have a bit of a suffering curiosity flavored to it. Um, it certainly wasn't suffering. I wasn't uh, uh, traumatized by these questions. Um, <laughs> I mean, we you mentioned earlier, we'll, we'll talk about Stoics and Epicureans. Um, I mean, another ancient philosopher that I'm very interested in, and in fact, have written a third book, um, is Aristotle. And, and Aristotle famously opens his book, The Metaphysics, by saying, all human beings by nature desire to know. There's a sense in which all of us have this kind of inbuilt curiosity about the world around us. We want to try to understand things and we, we um, layer meaning on top of all sorts of things, even when it's not there, right? Mm. Um, it's just part of what we do as human beings. So it felt like a very natural thing to be curious about these sorts of questions. I love it. I appreciate you sharing some some background, John. To get into these two different schools that that we mentioned, are there any thread or threads that come to mind that, that might run down the middle of both Epicureanism and Stoicism? Yeah, that's a good question. So there's a kind of traditional narrative which says that the Stoics and the Epicureans are opposed schools of philosophy, right? So the Stoics think that it's all about virtue and that's what you need to live a good life. The Epicureans think it's all about pleasure, and so they're often presented as op on opposite sides of the debate. And also when it comes to physics, right, the Stoics think that nature is something integrated and organic and um, unified by some kind of rational principle, whereas the Epicureans think it's all contingent and chaotic and there's no order or reason to anything at all. So that's one view. But if you look at the Epicureans and Stoics, side by side and compare compare them to some other um, ancient schools of philosophy and i'm thinking in particular of someone like plato right plato is this otherworldly figure who who thinks that um what really really exists is beyond the physical world and there's a sense in which we should turn our back on the physical world and he also thinks that knowledge comes through the use of reflected reason it doesn't come through the senses now, on those sorts of issues, the Stoics and the Epicureans agree with one another, right? They're both materialists. They both think that the only stuff that exists are the objects we're familiar with in the physical world. And they both think that all of our knowledge comes through the senses. Um, so there's a sense in which, compared to someone like Plato, both the Stoics and the Epicureans seem quite modern, in comparison. And in, in very different ways, you might be able to align either of them with certain strands that we see in, in modern physics, for instance. Um, so in that sense, I think there is some shared common ground between the Stoics and the Epicureans. It's really interesting. You write in the pocket Epicurean that Epicurus's vision of the ideal human life focused not on satisfying one's physical appetites, but rather on reaching a state uh, free of, of mental suffering, ataraxia or tranquility as, as translated. It, it sounds, you know, very similar to Seneca's On, on the Tranquility of Mind. It, it sounds like a similar project. 
Yes, and Seneca was an avid reader of Epicurus, and um, also Lucretius, the great Roman Epicurean poet. Um, and there, you're absolutely right. There's a sense in which what both the Stoics and the Epicureans are after is a state of mental tranquility. And they have slightly different arguments about how you get there, but there's a sense in which they both think they both think that that we both suffer all sorts of psychological disturbances, and they both think that most of those disturbances are ultimately our own fault. They're the product of um, the way we think about the world and the way we make mistakes in how we think about the world. And again, interestingly, there's a sense in which both the Stoics and the Epicureans will think that we need to study nature by understanding nature better. We'll be able to avoid making those sorts of mistaken judgments that lead to that kind of psychological disturbance. So again, they're both great schools of, of naturalist philosophy. By understanding nature and our place in it, um, that will be the path to reaching that kind of tranquility that, that we all are after. It's interesting. As you as you bring up uh, nature, I heard another interview that you did a, a while back, and you mentioned, if I remember correctly, that nature comes up, the word nature comes up more than any other word in Marcus Aurelius's meditations. And obviously, as you write, Epicurus, you know, studies nature extensively. How do how do you see that connecting with living the good life or or choosing the virtuous path? In the case of the Stoics, right, the, the, the good life is quite literally the life in accordance with nature. So you really do need to um, have an understanding of nature in order to be able to, to do that. Um, and also central in the, that Stoic idea is the idea of living, living in accordance with nature means living in harmony with nature or living consistently with nature. It means that there's no dissonance or discord between yourself and the natural world. Um, that you fit in seamlessly with the way that nature works and you're not fighting against natural processes that are out of your control. And so if you're going to try and and manage to achieve that kind of harmony and consistency, you really are going to have to understand how nature works. And, you know, a, sort of, um, I mean, I was going to say a trivial example, but in a sense it's a very important example, which is the fact we're all mortal, Right. We are all going to die at some point, and all of our loved ones are going to die at some point. And that's a, just a straightforward fact about the natural world and the way living organisms work. And to kind of fight against that reality is only going to cause us, you know, um, excessive distress. I mean, mm. there's a there's a natural... There's a natural element of grief when anyone's bereaved, of course. But if someone is really sort of struggling to accept that this is just the natural order of events, they're just going to compound their grief and make it much worse than it, it would otherwise be. So it's that kind of acceptance of the way the natural world works that seems to be really important. It seems like it's a difficult lesson for us to realize deeply, or maybe I'm just speaking for myself in the modern world, but you think of Marcus Aurelius, so many different analogies all throughout with nature, with streams, and what's good for the bees, good for the hive, uh, just countless numbers of 
of analogies. How do you think that might help us if if we're looking at uh, some of those examples as lessons? How could we maybe integrate that into our our daily lives? Any thoughts? As you say, some of those examples, like the streams or the bees and the hives, um, or he talks about how we fit in to the wider human community as being a branch that's part of a tree, and we ought not to become a branch that's broken off from the rest of the tree. Mm. I mean, I think what's mm. interesting about those is they're all natural images, right? Um, they're all they're a way a way of connecting with with kind of fundamental natural truths about the way the world works that are different from the sorts of values and expectations that that society gives us which are in a sense arbitrary right they vary from culture to culture and they vary Mm. over time but these natural examples are universal and i mean perhaps that's one of the reasons why some of these ancient images can still speak to us today because um they haven't changed yeah another chapter that you write about in the pocket epicurean is on this idea of you know what what do you really need and you write how epicurus's approach to this is to strip things back to to basics um you know what's essential for for physical survival food water shelter and kind of breaks it down into these three categories natural and necessary natural but not necessary and unnatural and unnecessary could you elaborate a, a bit on those on those categories i mean let's just think about bare survival and what we actually need i mean we need food we need water depending on the climate we need heat we need shelter these are the basics that we need to survive um we don't need that much more um i mean for a lot of us in the first world i mean we tend to have too much food right <laughs> i mean you know, half half the people in the developed world are on diets most of the time. There's too much food. We're not, you know, we're, in that sense, we're blessed. Um, so we don't need that much at all. We, you know, I mean, I, you know, you know, I'm of a. You get to a certain age. I need to be eating less rather than more, right? Um, <laughs> and um, so we don't need that much, um, and we can. We can have a taste for fancy food and fine dining and go to nice restaurants. And in that way, we're still satisfying a natural need that we have, but we're doing it in an elaborate way. We're doing it in in an excessive way. Uh, So that would be natural, um, but unnecessary. We don't need to go that far. A simple diet will do the job for us. Um, And all the other stuff, all the other stuff that we invest so much time and effort pursuing, um, or certainly a large amount of it, um, is simply unnatural and unnecessary, right? You know, I mean, the latest car or the latest phone, all the gadgets, the fancy clothes that people spend their weekends shopping for. I mean, there's there's so much stuff that, that we just don't need, but that preoccupies so much of our, our attention. And there's that sense of trying to keep up with the neighbours, keep up with the expectations of society. Um, you need all this stuff to be living a good life. And Epictetus, sorry, um, Epicurus just wants to say, no, 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 you don't actually need any of that stuff. And if you can come to, come to see that, in fact, what you need is very little, 
you'll be able to lose a lot of the anxiety you have about, you know, uh, whether I've got everything that I need in order to live well. And of course, there are, you know, sadly, there are a number of people, even in, in our developed societies, that, that really do struggle just to, to provide the basics, right? And obviously, that, that's terrible. But for a lot of us, we easily can um, cover the basics that we need. But then we get ourselves into a right psychological mess, because we feel as if we need all this other stuff. And if we can just do that kind of analysis of what really matters, we'll be able to remove a lot of that anxiety that we, that we create unnecessarily. How do you see this connecting with what the Stoics maybe call indifference or preferred indifferent and, and things like that? Uh, as you're hinting at, the, the, the Stoics have a, a view that in practice is not that dissimilar. Um, again, what matters is being in the right psychological frame of mind. So in the case of the Stoics, they'll, they'll describe this as virtue. Um, and all of the external stuff, all of those possessions and things that we pursue um, aren't, they, they argue, essential for a good life. Um, some of them we prefer because they aid our survival, so the food, the drink, and the shelter, and those that kind of stuff. Um, but none of it we ought to think is 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 um, absolutely required in order to live well. So that, again, that there are some important differences. I mean, we can go into more more detail if if you'd like. There are some important differences between the two positions, but the upshot of both is that. A good life ought to be a kind of a simple life in terms of um, sort of material possessions and things like that. We don't need much to get by. Yeah, I would love it, John, if you would hold hold my hand with some of the the differences. As taking a, a view from above on the on the uh, the two schools, some of these it it seems very similar. The overall project of it to to me for the Stoics, there is this focus on on virtue. Right, so you need to develop a virtuous character, and we can cash that out in a number of different ways. But they focus on the virtues of wisdom, courage, um, moderation, and uh, justice, and those give us the character traits we need in order to live a good life. And Many of those character traits are kind of, well, they're interconnected, but they're also outwardly facing, right? So justice would be the, the kind of the obvious example. Um, in order to be a good human being, you need to act um, well towards your fellow human beings and be a kind of um, a good participant in the wider human community. So there's quite a strong focus on community within Stoicism. So there's a sense in which there are very specific character traits you need to develop. With the Epicureans, they're also talking about develop the right kind of frame of mind, um, but they're not so focused on, on those sorts of virtues, right? So it's more about um, the experience of, of psychological pleasure and avoiding um, psychological pain. So it's about reaching that state of tranquility. But it's, there's not that s quite so strong sense of kind of being part of a wider human community. So mm. there's a famous Epicurean saying, um, live unnoticed. 
And, mm. um, and Epicurus and his followers kind of retreated into a private community, right? They were, they lived in their private garden. They, it was almost, almost monastic, right? And they keep themselves to the sel- themselves. They live a quiet life. They're not doing anyone else any other harm, but they're not actively engaged in the wider society um, in the way that the, um, the, the Stoics thought that we ought to be as good social animals. And I think you really see this in the Roman context as well. So um, a number of the sort of prominent uh, Roman Stoics that we might think of are, you know, someone like Seneca, for instance, he's engaged in politics, Marcus Aurelius as well. There's that idea of being a good citizen that really comes through in Stoicism because you've got to have these virtues. Whereas the Epicureans are not so interested in that. They're, they're a bit more like the, um, as I say, it's almost almost monastic. Um, so I think that's one kind of, one sort of significant difference we might want to stress. Yeah, definitely big, big difference. How about in the area of navigating negative emotions? Is there anything in Epicureanism in in that in that area? I mean, they don't give a really detailed analysis of emotions in the way that the Stoics do, mm. um, but they're obviously interested in avoiding um, psychological disturbances. So they particularly focus on fear as an emotion that we all to try to avoid i mean they talk about fear of the gods um perhaps not so relevant for us today but also um fear of death um and so they, they understand fear as being a, a debilitating emotion but they don't give us a kind of a full detailed analysis in the way that um in the way that the um the stoics do and in fact this is also a point where we see a key difference because the emotions that the Stoics think we ought to avoid, one of them, which they think is genuinely bad, is pleasure, right? Pleasure is something to be avoided, according to the Stoics, whereas for the Epicureans, that's the thing that we ought to be pursuing. Hmm. And you you list in the book this fourfold remedy, which we've touched on uh, a bit in the conversation already. Uh, don't fear God. Don't worry about death. What's good is easy to get. And finally, what's terrible is easy to endure. Could you elaborate uh, on any of those? But maybe start with the last one. I'm not sure we've touched on what's terrible is easy to endure. Yeah, I mean, we have effectively touched on the first three, haven't we already? What's (laughs) good is easy to get is the, the natural and necessary bits. What's terrible is easy to endure is... Uh, I think what he means is is something along these lines. The, given that he thinks that it all comes down to pleasure and pain, pleasure is the only thing that's really good. Pain is the thing that's really bad. The only really bad thing for an Epicurean is intense pain. Um, and we might think of intense physical pain. And this might not sound so consoling, but, I mean, he effectively says something along these lines. Um, if you suffer really, really bad physical pain, right, either it's going to be really short and intense and it'll be over very quickly, or it'll be so bad, it'll kill you. But either way, it's not going to last forever. (laughs) (laughs) Um, You know, I mean, uh, whereas, you know, if people have, have, have chronic pain and it lasts over a long period of time, it's usually something kind of, you know, it's it's fairly low level. 
It's it's annoying, it's irritating, but it's not really, really extreme. The kind of really extreme, you know, um, sort of shooting pain of of, of uh, toothache or uh, that you get is usually short lived. I'm curious: is there anything maybe written by Epicurus that aligns with Stoicism that clearly? illustrates the point in a, in a in a helpful way uh, obviously there's many things that seneca quotes him on but is there anything of, of looking at the two that uh maybe epicurus wrote wrote a little clearer on this particular topic yeah not not really to be honest epicurus was i think a little bit older than zeno who founded the stoic school I think the Epicurean Garden was founded maybe 10 years before Zeno started teaching at the Stoa in Athens. So there's a sense in which the Stoics may have come just a little bit too late for Epicurus himself. Mm. Um, But also because the Epicureans had this reputation of largely keeping themselves to themselves, they weren't so interested in engaging with arguments with other schools. So... Mm. There's 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 not so much that we have in the way of Epicurean response to Stoic ideas. I think in another curious question, and I've meant to ask this in in previous interviews, but never never uh, asked it. But do we have any insight into the number of people? You think about these different schools. You know, how many people on average were maybe associated with some of these ancient schools? Mm, that's a very difficult question to yeah. answer. <laughs> uh, I mean, ancient Athens wasn't a wasn't a uh, a huge place. I don't think uh, there'll be there'll be ancient historians that can answer this better than me. I'm not sure what the population was. Um, yeah. I'm not going to try and guess any any figures. <laughs> no problem. Um, so. Um, but no, I don't think that they would have been. I don't think that they would have been huge. I mean, um, I mean, maybe, maybe, maybe even even a hundred at any one time would have been quite large. Um, yeah. I remember a few years ago when we organised a um, a modern Stoic um, event, one of our first events, and we had about three hundred people gathered together for the first time. And one of my colleagues said, "This is probably the largest gathering of Stoics ever." <laughs> <laughs> It's so fascinating when you think about a, a small group of individuals coming together and it it lasting, you know, thousands of years and 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 really kind of thriving thriving today. Uh, I've heard you talk about in a previous interview the word emotion and some of the difficulties of of that translation between maybe what the the Stoics meant by that. Could you, I I thought that was really helpful. Would you mind elaborating a bit there? When we use the English word emotion, we're, we're referring to some, it's a quite a broad category, right? There's all sorts of things we might lump under that English word emotion. And, um, Many of the things that we would include under that category aren't the sorts of things that the Stoics had in mind when they were talking about emotions. So we use that English word emotion to translate a a specific Greek word, um, pathe, which is what the Stoics were talking about. 
And they have a very precise kind of technical definition of, of what counts as a pathé, right? So they're talking about um, a, a, a negative feeling that's the product of uh, a value judgment that we've made. And they distinguish that from various other things. So they'll also talk about some positive emotions, which they which they think are fine and that we can hold on to. And they'll also refer to what they call first movements, which are kind of what we would call sort of sudden, immediate emotional responses, right? You blush or um, you think you might be in danger and you flinch or you hear a loud noise and you jump back, Right. All of those things that we might think of as sort of emotional responses in a, in, a, in a loose way. The Stoics will say, no, 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 that's not the sort of thing we've got in mind here. Those are kind of almost immediate physiological reactions to situations. But they don't count as emotions in our sense of the word because they're not based on um, a value judgment about the situation because they're too quick and they're too immediate. So... Um, if you hear some loud noise or a gunshot or something and you 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 pull back and you look frightened, um, that's not an emotion in the Stoic sense. Um, the emotion in a, in a Stoic sense would be you've made a value judgment that something terrible is happening and that generates in you um, what they would call an emotion of distress. Um, so it's only things that have got this va- that are produced by making a value judgment that count for them. And it's those things in particular that they think we ought to avoid. And I think this is a really important point because the Stoics aren't suggesting that we become sort of unfeeling blocks of stone and we don't react to anything and we just kind of stand um, stand by impassively, not reacting at all, right? Of course, we'll have all those immediate reactions. Um, the difference is... We won't make the value judgments that turn those natural immediate reactions into something much stronger that, that stays stays within us, the sort of thing that will, you know, eat us up um, days after an event. Um, and that's what they think we want. We ought to try to um, avoid falling into. So helpful. I, I really appreciate that, John. When you think about stoicism, many people think of these many different exercises, whether negative visualization, view from above, journaling, and the the list goes on. In the Epicurean school, are there any particular practices or exercises that they utilized? Not not in the same way. Um, So as we've just been saying, the Stoics have this real interest in emotions and how we um, overcome them. And so they produce all of these sorts of exercises in order to 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 help us train so that we can do that um the epicureans are not really not really interested in that kind of psychological work there's a sense in which the epicureans think that in fact life is much easier to um get right i mean the epicureans will just say look strip back all your needs to the basics realize you don't need to be quite so anxious about everything because you really don't need very much and then just hang out in the garden chat with your friends enjoy the sunshine it's really just that easy why does it all have to be so much hard work 
Um, there's a sense in which the Stoics present, sometimes the Stoics can present things as it's really hard work. You've got to do all these exercises and training. It's tough to get out of all of those bad mental habits you've got yourself into. And there's a sense in which that's true for many people, right? I mean, the Epicureans are the kind of the laid back hippies and just say, you know, just stop overthinking everything, man. Just sit back and enjoy the sunshine and it'll all be good. If if you had to pick a side of the fence that connects more with more with you, is there a, a particular school that resonates? Yeah, I mean, this is something I go back and forth on many times. I mean, I mean, as you'll probably know, I've I've written quite a lot on the Stoics and worked on them for a long time. So there is a sense in which, you know, that's where my my main interests lie and my main affiliation lie. But the reason why I really wanted to write the book on the Epicureans as well is because I've always I've always admired them, and I think there are some really useful lessons that we can learn from them. And so, I mean, like Seneca, who was happy to. He was he was a Stoic, but he was happy to learn from the Epicureans as well. I think I'm happy to kind of occupy that space. Um, and also, I know that there are a lot of people out there who are deeply sceptical about Stoicism and don't want to go down that path. And so for that audience, I thought, well, the Epicureans avoid many of the objections that some people have to the Stoics. And so um, you know, that might be an, an alternative path that would be worth presenting to people. Oh, that's great. How about some of these misunderstandings that that may exist for for stoicism and with epicureanism? Are there any that come to mind that you, you think people really just misunderstand a, about these philosophies? With the stoics, we've mentioned a bit about the emotions, right? It's not about being an unfeeling block of stone. Um, there's a great saying from a, a, a good friend of mine. Um, it's not about gritting your teeth. It's about seeing things differently so that you don't have to. Um, mm. I think that's a great one sentence summary of Stoicism. Um, another misconception about Stoicism is that it falls into a kind of a fatalism and you just kind of uh, give up on trying to change anything in the world and you become just passive I mean, that's just not true from what we know about how the ancient Stoics operated. And many of them were really committed to political causes and were trying to change um, situations. Um, So it's not about becoming passive and resigned to anything. I think that's an important misconception that the Stoics sometimes suffer. And again, another image is that the Stoic kind of retreats into themselves and becomes slightly sort of antisocial and distanced from other people. And again, that's not true. There's a great stress on community and being a social animal and connecting with other people that the Stoics really, really insist on. So though, for the Stoics in particular, those are some misconceptions that it's really worth fighting against. Um, with the Epicureans, I suppose the big misconception is that it's all about physical pleasure. And uh, they're kind of, you know, uh, gluttonous and greedy and a bit self-absorbed. And even in antiquity, that caricature of of Epicureanism was already present. But um, as we've already discussed with his analysis of our different needs and desires, Epicurus is insistent that, in fact, it's the simple life that matters and that Mm. you don't need that much. And, you know, you... 
if you again if you strip back and live a simple life you can appreciate simple pleasures just as much as 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 fancy um excessive ones so just to enjoy that you know the the fresh bread and the and the and the you know a glass of fruit juice you can appreciate the, those things as much as you can a, a, a an expensive bottle of wine or a, a fancy meal in an expensive restaurant uh how about this idea of seeing clearly you write many of our fears and anxieties are re- are a result of of failing to see things as they really are it's our knowledge of how the world works that will set us free according to epicurus which which seems to be similar in as we talked about before in meditations as well this idea of of seeing how the how the world works but how do we take that idea and maybe connect it with virtue or connect it with our with our daily lives today yeah i mean that's a that's a big question isn't it so i mean I, it comes back to just thinking about how how the natural world works um and thinking about our place within the natural world i mean another point of contact between the two schools is this idea that we embrace a kind of a larger perspective on things right the the view from above or the big picture view um you know we're relatively small limited finite creatures within a much larger nature natural world um and there are all sorts of forces out of our control that buffet us about and we can we can either fight against those forces or or we can go with them right and whether like the stoics you think that these are part of some kind of rational order within nature or whether like the epicureans you think it's all you know contingent and random and there's no great plan to anything either way um we need to kind of understand that there are these big forces out of our control and it's a question of of how we think about them we can we can fight against things that happen out of our control or we can simply acknowledge that well that's just how it is and how am i going to how am i going to deal with this situation that i can't change how am i going to make peace with this situation that i can't necessarily change um and and if you can't change it if there's nothing you can do about it i mean obviously there are all sorts of things we can alter in our lives, but there are some big picture issues that we just can't can't fix. Mm. Um, we can either make peace with them in some way, or we can fight against them and generate all of this sort of psychological distress for us. But no matter how distressed we might become, we're not actually changing anything mm. apart from making ourselves miserable. Mm. And I think there's I think we can see that idea in 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 both schools. And, and the one way in which we kind of get out of our heads and start to start to see our place within nature from a more objective standpoint is to try and embrace that big picture view. And in both cases, they effectively say, well, we should do a bit of physics. We should study, study the natural world and, um, and, and, and see it from the, pers- from the more objective perspective of a physicist, we might say. Mm. It's so interesting. I think of of meditations, many passages, but maybe most well known is that opening to to book two, 
where it, it seems like many of these things of seeing clearly, making sense of, of the world connects with hopefully being able to choose virtue or, or find tranquility. There's some sort of purpose. And, and maybe as you mentioned, it, they, they see it as living the virtuous life as a challenge. It's, it's difficult. It's it's curious from from the other school if it's not for virtue if it's not for this connection of of integration in the world why there would be that similar interest in in some of these things if that makes any sense in terms of a question no absolutely I mean what what both schools want is for us to be able to live a good life right? That's what all human beings want, right? We all want to live a good life. We might have different images of what that looks like, but that's what we all want, right? Anyone who says they doesn't, they don't want to be happy and live well, um, you know, needs to go to see a psychiatrist, right? Someone's seriously broken if that's, if that's not what they're after. Um, you know, if someone becomes self-destructive, yeah? So we, we want the same things. The Stoics and the Epicureans both want to show us how to live a good life they just think that they've got different answers to that shared question right so that's where the stoics are going to say it's virtue that's the key we think that you've got to develop these character traits and then you'll live well then you'll be able to cope with whatever situation you find yourself in and whatever circumstances nature throws at you with the right frame of mind you're going to be okay that's what matters and the Epicureans are going to say, well, what you need is to be able to, again, gain a sense of psychological tranquility, but to do so by minimizing physical pain and by maximizing psychological pleasure and by attending to those things that bring an anxiety into your life, whether that's fear of death, fear of the gods, fear about whether you're going to have enough money to provide for yourself and your family next week. Um, you know, you strip back your needs, make them very simple, and then you can reduce that anxiety about your, you know, whether you can provide or not. Um, and, and so that's their different answer. But the question, the project is about how to live well. And that's the same for both. Well, I love it. Well, how about the topic of, of wisdom? How do you think about or or define wisdom in in daily life today, John? I guess wisdom is about making good judgments. It's about making good judgments in situations, making the right choices, making informed choices. And I mean, particularly thinking of the of the Stoics as well. It's about taking time to make good decisions rather than simply being reactive or impulsive right so you know our emotions will take over our lives um well to be topical for a moment we might think about a certain event at the oscars um mm. not long ago um if we act impulsively without pausing to think we might do something that we we'll come to regret later and so by just taking that moment to think about you know what's the right thing to do here um, and that makes all the difference to, to living um, with some kind of wisdom, I think. 
Well, thank you so much. This has been great. I, I really appreciate you taking the time. Where do you point people interested in, in learning more about you and, and your work in the world? Well, as you mentioned, for for um, people in the United States, there's the pop, pocket Epicurean, pocket Stoic. Um, um, outside the United States, um, they've got slightly different titles. They're entitled Lessons in Stoicism and um, The Fourfold Remedy. So um, I hope people will find those interesting. Um, uh, beyond that, uh, I have a website where you can find more information about my sort of more academic work and other things that I've been doing. Well, great. And we'll link all of that in the show notes. And I have to say for the for the listeners, if you're looking for a very practical, integrate in daily life read on Epicureanism and Stoicism, those are, are, are great uh, resources there. So I highly recommend. Well, John Sellers, thank you so much for coming on In Search of Wisdom. I really appreciate it. Uh, my pleasure. Thank you so much for listening. You can get the show notes and links to resources mentioned at perennialleader.com slash podcast. If you're interested in learning more, subscribe to The Path. It's our free weekly newsletter. These are short reflections on wisdom for everyday life right to your inbox. And lastly, I urge you to put what you heard into practice. Until next time, be wise and be well.